0: you finish a book, you have to go through a transitional period. It's just required. (laughs) Mike knows what I'm talking about. And uh, so for a couple weeks, we're going to be in Psalm 139. Uh, John Calvin said, no one can look upon himself without immediately turning his thoughts to the contemplation of God. Think about that. He said, no one can look upon himself without immediately turning his thoughts to the contemplation of God. Then he quotes Acts 17:28, which says, For in God we live and move and have our being, or we exist. In other words, our very existence is in, uh, in the person of God. Everything in our life is related to God. Everything is. Now, of course, the unsaved person, the person without Christ, isn't, they don't think that way. They don't think about themselves, and then they relate their life to God. They don't do that. They're not thinking about God. They compare them. They, maybe they're their own God, or they think only of themselves. Um, and they, or they compare themselves with other people, but they're not thinking about God at all. Uh, they're not concerned with him. A person without Christ is either his own God, or maybe he has another God he worships other than the God of the Bible, one he's made up, or whatever. Uh, like we, look, we saw in Isaiah 44, people building idols. Um, that's what they do. But when the true believer looks at himself, when you look at yourself, immediately you should think, uh, how, do, how does this, my life, how does it relate to God? How does God figure into my life? That should, God should be all about, you should be all about him. Your your life should revolve around him. As we consider ourselves immediately, our thoughts should turn to a contemplation of the person of God. That should be the first thing we do always under all circumstances. Whatever we're considering, whatever decision we're trying to make in life, whatever move we're trying to make in life, we should first of all think not about the the, the financial aspects of the move or the, the benefits of the move, when it may, may, may be, or the decision we're trying to make. But how does this? How does God fit into all this? What does God want? How does He view all this? And so we want to contemplate God and how truly amazing He is. C.S. Lewis said, "In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Just totally superior to yourself. Unless you know that God, unless you know God is that superior to yourself, and therefore." Know yourself as nothing in comparison. You do not know God at all. So we should see God that way. Now in Psalm 139, David is taken up with the subject of the greatness of God, the superiority of God in relationship to himself, and he realizes his own littleness as you see as you read through the psalm. a Great psalm, everybody's familiar with Psalm 139. As you as you read through it, you, David realizes his own littleness in comparison to God's greatness, and these are not the words of some you know, an academic theologian just being academic and, as, and writing about theology as if it's very impersonal. Have you ever read those dry, dusty theology books that are very impersonal, very academic, you know, and you read through them and there's, no, there's really no relationship to God. But to David, the theology, of, the theology, the study of God is very, very personal. It's a very personal relationship he has with God. Uh, it's a very real relationship he has with God, and he's just taken back by the whole experience of knowing God as you, see, as you read the psalm. Uh, the personal pronouns, as you look through Psalm 139, you're, taking, you're, you're immediately aware of the personal pronouns in this book, like me, my, I, he used approximately 45 times throughout the psalm. And this psalm is all about God as David contemplates his greatness. The psalm can be divided up into three parts. Number one, David's contemplation of God. Number two, David's con- condemnation of God's enemies. And number three, David's prayer of application. And we'll, go, we'll get through about half of this tonight, the other half next week, the Lord willing. Uh, tonight, first of all, we want to look at David's contemplation of God. That's in the first 18 verses, although we're not going to get through the first 18 verses tonight. David's contemplation of God. Now, as David contemplates his God, and it's a very personal relationship he has, uh, he stands in awe. He just stands back in awe of God, of who God is. He contemplates the perfect knowledge of God. He's overwhelmed by that. He is overwhelmed by the inescapable presence of God and also the unlimited power of God. It is a subject that totally and completely amazes him. A couple times throughout the psalm, he stops and says, wow, I can't, this is just an amazing thing. Uh, First of all, notice he's amazed at the perfect knowledge of God. First six verses, he's amazed at the perfect knowledge of God. Look at verse 1. The Lord. David says to the Lord, "O Lord, you have known, you have searched me and known me. Uh, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down, and are are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me before, behind, and before, and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me." It is too high. I cannot attain to it. He's amazed at the perfect knowledge of God. Now, God is omniscient. We talk about the word omniscience. Everybody in, Sunday, in our church, probably everybody in Sunday school has learned that word at least. God is all-knowing, right? God knows everything. He knows everything there ever was, everything that now is, everything that will be. He knows everything that is possible. He knows everything that is actual. Uh, he knows everything. Nothing can escape his notice. Nothing can escape the notice of God That being the case, the Lord knows everything about every individual on this planet, which means he knows everything there's to know about you and I. Everything. Nothing uh, escapes his eye at all. In the context of Psalm 139, David is amazed that he knows everything about him. And he talks about this. Look at verse 1. He tells the Lord in verse 1, You have searched me and known me. Search means to carefully examine something, to explore something, to investigate something thoroughly. Now, now we think, when when we talk about investigation or examination, exploration, we think in terms of people doing this, not God. We don't think God doing this. We think of, for example, a police investigation into a murder. Someone is murdered, and the police have to investigate that murder. They look for clues. They look for suspects. They interview people. They ask questions, they gather information, they ask people to turn in clues, all these things, because they may not know who the murderer is, and they, won't, and they have to prove who it is, and they have to have all the evidence to prove it, and so they investigate this. Is that how it is with the Lord? He has to know, he has to find out all the answers and the clues and to, to, all, to all the questions. Is that what he does? No, because he knows everything already automatically. It's written this way just to help us understand that God is truly concerned with every detail of our life. He's concerned about everything in our lives. He's very much involved with his people. And he not only knows of our existence, but every detail in our life. Think about that. He knows about every detail in your personal life. Kind of a scary thought, in a way. It's meant to be a thought that's, that's encouraging to us, though. Although also maybe a thought that's a warning to us. David says to God, you have known me. This is a, he means intimately. This is an intimate knowledge. It's like the the, the same word is used about Moses, where it says that Moses, or rather, the Lord knew Moses face to face. That kind of an intimate relationship. The Lord's relationship with Moses was not aloof, he wasn't standing back. And uh, it was a close relationship, an intimate one. And even though Moses had this unique relationship with God in the Old Testament, nevertheless, all his people. Share in that, at least. They share in the fact that we have an intimate relationship with God, with the Lord. I like uh, John 10. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. I know them. God's sovereign over all we do. And they they follow me. But he knows us personally, each one of us, each one of his people. 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his. It's this deeply personal relationship that we have with God. Now, if you look throughout the first six verses of Psalm 139, the term no is used again and again through verses, I think, 2, 4, and 6, used in different ways. He says it again and again. And so what he's saying is the Lord takes a personal interest in each and every one of his people. Dave is the example here. And yet the Lord is personally interested in every one of you. Um, And a lot of times we don't think that. We think God's aloof somewhere, out there somewhere, but... Certainly not in connected, interconnected with my life, but he is. The life of a believer he is definitely connected with. Many people would have you believe that all religions serve the same God. Have you heard that? Oh, we all serve the same God. We all have the same God. That has got to be the most illogical statement I've ever heard. If people would only think that statement through what they're saying. Because if they studied all the world religions, they would see very clearly that not all the world serves the same God. They're all totally different. In every religion, totally different. For example, Islam teaches that their God is impersonal. Did you know that? Islam's God is impersonal. He has no emotions. He is unknowable. They don't have a personal relationship with God in Islam. That's not how that works with their God. But the Lord, the true God, the God of creation, the God of Scripture, is knowable. We can know him. He's made it that way. He knows us, first of all. He is personal. He has emotions. We can have a relationship with him. He knows us. We can know him. We can know the God that knows us. And that's a tremendous thing. Now, of course, his knowledge is perfect towards us. Our our knowledge of him is is imperfect, but we can still have a a relationship with him. And this whole psalm is about God's love and care and personal interest in every one of his people. Now, there's, you know, when you get into a subject like this, you can dig out the theological, you know, the systematic theology book and all that, and you can look at a lot of terms, right? One term to think about is the term eminence. Um, eminence, if we add it on the screen up here, uh, it's the uh, eminence with an A in it. It's not the imminent coming of Christ. Not not these near at hand. Not that kind of eminence. And another kind, it, rem- it means that God remains in creation, Remains in, in other words, he's deeply and actively involved in his creation. He's actively involved in you know, the deists back in the day. They used to think that God, you know, threw the world out there and then let it run on its own and backed off and let, it let the people in the world have at it. But that's not what the scriptures teach. God is intimately involved with the script, with the with his world that's seen in the scripture. Colossians 1.17, it's all over the scripture. Colossians 1.17, for example, says, In Christ all things, all things in the universe hold together. So Christ sustains the entire universe. He holds everything. He's holding you together. He's holding everything together, ultimately. Or as if you want to go to another theological source, the hymn that says he's got the whole world in his hands. Maybe we can understand that one better. He, holds, he has the whole world in his hands. And it's not just the world in general that he's involved with. It's... Every life, your life, all my life, all of our lives in particular, He's involved with. I love Jesus. What Jesus said in Matthew six twenty six, He said, uh, "Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor they, do they gather in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Your heavenly Father takes care of the birds of the air. Are you?" He says. Application. He says, "Are you not worth? Are you not worth much more than they?" You're worth much more than they. If God takes care of the birds, he's going to take care of you. We're valuable to him. I know we don't think in terms of that, like, like that. We're, we are valuable. God's people are valuable to him. Matthew 10:29 29 to 31 says this, are, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? The poor people would even eat sparrows and buy them for a very small price. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows the hairs, the number of the hairs of everybody's head in this room, and he knows those that count as it disintegrates through the years and to the very end. You say, I've already disintegrated. He knows what the count is right now, okay? He's, got, he's keeping count. He's keeping count. Nothing, you know, we're valuable to him. Nothing happens to you without the Lord's full knowledge and consent. Nothing. He knows all things. If you take, if God, listen to this, if God takes notice of each sparrow, each little insignificant sparrow, small insignificant creature that falls to the ground, he dies, um, and God knows about that and thinks about that and and, and is involved with that, how much more does he take notice of you as his his, uh, child? He's sovereign over all these things. It's an amazing thought. In Mark 4, the disciples are in a storm. They're in the midst of a storm. getting worse their boat is filling with water at the same time Jesus is in their boat and he's sound asleep he's sound asleep and they're panicking on the boat and he's Jesus is seemingly unconcerned about their apparent danger Uh, and so the disciples wake him up and they say this think about this question teacher do you not care that we are perishing Jesus Lord Jesus God in the flesh, don't you care that we're perishing here? Don't you see what's happening? Don't you understand what's happening here? We're in the midst of a storm, and you're sound asleep. What's going on here anyway? Now, what a question to ask Jesus. Have you ever asked the Lord that, though? Have we asked the Lord that? Do you, don't you care about me? Don't you see the mess I'm in here? I've got problems here. Do you not know about this? Do you not know about my problem I have? We ask, we ask the same thing. Well, how, did he, how do you think the Lord responded to that question? He calmed the sea and the, and the wind. And then it was his, his turn to ask a question. He said to them, why are you afraid? How is it you have no faith? You don't trust me? You, know, you can trust me. You can trust me in the storm here, in the difficult times. Now, it's easier said than, you know, if I was in a difficult time, I'm behind this pulpit right now. I'm pretty protected right here with this. In the difficult time, that's where I'm, I'm tested, though. Like Shane and Noel recently, for example. Luke, in in recent years. But the Lord does care about all the details of your life. He cares about all those things. He knows the troubles you face. He knows about all these things. And uh, he works in ways that we don't always understand. But it still should be encouraging to us, very encouraging to us, this message of Psalm 139. So David gets more specific about all the details as we go through Psalm 139. First of all, he says in, in so many words, he knows about my daily activities, God knows about my daily activities. Look at verse 2. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Look at verse 3. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Two activities mentioned in verse 2, sitting down and rising up. The Lord knows when I sit down and when I rise up, when I stand up. Big deal, right? He knows when I sit down and stand up. Uh, That doesn't sound very exciting, does it? It's very unimportant activity very mundane all of us may be engaged in this kind of activity maybe several times a day wouldn't you think that God would have said something more grand and fantastic than that maybe he would have you know talked about you know greater spiritual activities like the lord knows when i'm preaching or evangelizing or making disciples or something like that david was a king he could have pointed out to the, as an illustration, he could have used, instead of sitting down and standing up, he could have said, look, I'm a king, I've got complicated political matters going on in my kingdom. The Lord knows about all these things. He could have used that as an illustration. But instead, he focuses on the mundane, right? Sitting down and getting up. The Lord knows, by the way, when you came in this auditorium, the Lord knew what seat you would take. And he and he knows when you sat down, and he, know, and he knows when you're going to rise. Hopefully, he won't rise up before the sermon's over. But if you do, he's going to know about it. You know, I think, I think the Lord wants us to. Uh, I think the Lord wants to, us to know that He knows all about even the most mundane, boring, routine activities in our lives. Those activities we engage in day by day. He wants us to know. He knows about all that stuff. Very mundane. Kenny knows when you sat down very mundane activity. He's that interested in us. He's that involved in us. If he knows these activities that are unnoticeable, by most people, nobody cares when you sit down or stand up. If he knows all about these things, then he knows about all the greater activities in your life. He knows about the great trials you face and the problems you have and all these things. If he knows that you sit down and stand up, he knows about all the other things. He knows when you do these things. Now, when I come home from work or wherever I'm at, uh, come home and I say, how'd your day go? She, she'll tell me, she might ask me how my day went. I wouldn't know how her day went unless I ask her because I have to ask questions to find answers. I don't I don't know. I don't know. I'm not God. I have to ask in order to know. But God doesn't have to do that. He automatically knows all my daily activities. He knows. Verse 3 says, you scrutinize my path. word scrutinize means to winnow or to scatter. It's an agricultural term. Uh, when the farmer threw up his grain, the wheat and the, the precious wheat would be separated from the worthless chaff by the wind. It would separate the chaff that was no good, and the wheat would fall, and that's what you would keep. The point is made, being made is that the Lord discerns the path we take. He knows he can separate the wheat from the chaff. He knows what we're doing. He knows whether what we're doing is good or bad, whether we're walking his path or deviating from it. He knows whether what we're doing is good or evil. He knows all these things. And Not only does he know our spiritual path, he knows our physical one. He knows tomorrow when you go to work, where you're going. He knows the roads you're going to take. He knows the traffic you're going to face. He knows whether you're going to Walmart or not. He knows uh, what if, you're, if there's an accident ahead in the road you're, fate, you're on. He knows all these things. Whether you make a wrong turn or not, it, it goes on and on. You know, a couple weeks ago when uh, Kenny uh, did the great now heroic act of saving the uh, highway patrolman, God knew all that. He knew it before it happened. He knew it was going to happen. It's in his plan. He knew all these things. He's sovereign. He knew the Uber driver would pass out or whatever happened. He knew that, that Kenny would, would be there. and would, I told Kenny, I texted him, I said, you know, God used you that day to do this thing. You were there at the right place at the right time. God had you there to do this thing. Verse 3 says, he scrutinizes my lying down. He knows even when I go to sleep. He knows when I'm weary and lay down. He knows all these things. It's not a surprise to him. He says, you're intimately acquainted with all my ways. You know the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt? Well, it often does. (laughs) People see us on Sunday, you know, everybody's smiling, we're all dressed and all this and nicely, and we say hi to each other and we talk to each other very nicely. However, if you could see us, if you could only see us throughout the week and live with us, you might change your mind. (laughs) You might change your opinion about us. When you see our annoying habits and our, Attitude that may not always be what it should be, and all these things, and you may familiar, familiarity in that case might breed contempt. Wow, I don't want to be here anymore. Too familiar with this guy. Uh, but the Lord knows; He's very familiar with all with everything we do, and yet, in spite of ourselves, He still loves us anyway. Even though He's very familiar with everything we do, He knows where we've been, He knows where we're going, He knows our daily routine. Secondly, the Lord knows. The Lord knows my thoughts. Look at verse 2, second half of You understand my thought from afar. You understand my far, thought from afar. He does not have to question us as to what we're thinking. We have to do that. What are you thinking about right now? But he, he knows what we're thinking. He's able to discern what you're thinking. They say that, I think, 50,000 to 70,000 thoughts pass through our, our minds in, within 24 hours. In some cases, maybe we could lower that. Maybe in some cases it's 100 to 200 thoughts in a day. I don't know. But the Lord knows every one of them. He knows every thought I'm thinking. He knows every thought that everybody's thinking all the time. Every single thought. He knows about all the thoughts that honor him in my head. He knows all about all the thoughts that do not honor him in my head. He knows all those things. Not only our thoughts, he knows the attitude of our heart. He knows our motives for why we, why did you do what you did? Why did you help that guy out? What was the reason behind all that? I don't know. You know, maybe. He definitely knows, for sure. He knows our motives. You know, we can be pretty good at concealing things from others. We're very good at concealing things from people. We've mastered that art, right? We, you know, we don't want people to know what we're thinking, what our motives are, what we're doing. But God knows. He knows your dreams and plans. He knows your goals. He knows when your plans change. Change. None, None of those things are hidden from him. The Bible says man looks on the outside, but God looks on the what? Looks on the heart. So he knows all these things. Now, for me, I can, I'll probably try to judge a book by its cover. But God knows the content. He knows actually what's going on in a person. And some people, you know, if they know you well, they may try to predict your behavior based on your past behavior. Oh, I think this person is going to do this based on what I know this person can do. And that may happen, but the Lord knows exactly what you're thinking all the time. And that even if you change your, you know, your, the way you operate, in that instance, he knows what you're going to do. He doesn't have to be near you to find information out. He, God knows your thought from afar. He doesn't need spies to tell him, intel, to give him information to tell him what you're going to do. Nothing is too far off to God. I like the verse in Hebrews, everything is open and naked before him with whom we have to do, with whom we must give an account. God sees it all. Only, only God has this ability. He knows my inmost thoughts. Maybe that's why David prays the way he does at the end of Psalm 19. Psalm 19, 14, he prays this. Let the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Medi- may the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. And maybe that would, and that would definitely be a good prayer for us to pray as well. So the Lord knows our thoughts. Secondly, uh, for, uh, fourthly, the Lord knows my words. He knows my words in verse 4. Even before there is, think about this one for a minute, <clears throat> even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You know it all. Do you think that I know exactly what I'm going to say one hour from now? I have no idea. I have no idea. The Lord does know. He does. Now, I hope I don't put my foot in my mouth one hour from now. I hope I don't put my foot in my mouth one minute from now. That's possible. That's possible. Uh, but the Lord knows. In Luke 22, 34, the Lord told Peter, prior to the cross, he said, I, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. This is right after Peter swore up and down, oh, I'm willing to go to prison with you. I'll, go, I'll die with you if needs be, if that's, the, if that's what I have to do. But the Lord knew what Peter did not know. He knew what he would deny him in the very near future with his words. He knew the words he was going to say. He knew the words Peter would say before he said it. He knew it. He knew how many times he would deny him. Three times, he knew it. And he said, this is what's going to happen. The Lord knows in advance what we're going to say. He knows if I'm going to gossip in the next hour or two. He knows if I'm going to lie. He knows if I'm going to encourage someone. He knows if I'm going to discourage someone. He knows all these things. That's why it's a good idea, again, to pray the words of Psalm 1914, which David also wrote. Let the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. The thoughts that we have and the words should be acceptable in his sight. Fifthly, the Lord knows our, my insecurities. He knows my insecurities, verse 5. He says, you have enclosed me before and behind and laid your hand upon me. The Lord knows we're weak. He's well aware of the fact that we're frail. He knows this information. <laughs> Not surprised him. He's, he knows we're totally dependent upon him, and so he surrounds us with himself. That's what he does. He's before us. He's behind us. He's all around us. We're surrounded by God. God's people are surrounded by God. The root meaning of the word "enclose" is to make a valuable, a valuable object such as money secure. We want to secure our money, don't we? So we hide it. Or we put it in a bank or something. Make it secure. Second uh, Kings 5.23 uses that same word, "enclose," in reference to enclosing or binding silver in a bag. Why would you want to do that? To keep it secure. We want to keep it secure. The Lord encloses his people with his presence, that we will be secure in him, find security in him. That should be a great encouragement for all of us. Psalm 34.7 says, The Lord, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Now, the Lord doesn't do this for everybody, this special presence of God. He does it for those like David who know him, for all of us who know him. That's reassuring. It's reassuring to know you're never alone. He's always with you under any circumstances, wherever you're at. Now, you may feel like you're all alone, but the Lord. It's, the, the Scripture says, here, "The Lord hems His people in. He hems us in on every side. He's our constant companion. How often do we cry out to Him every day? Lord, I need Your help. I'm in a. I got a problem here. I can't handle it. I need Your help. But he, we know He's there. We know the Scripture teaches that He's there. He provides us with so many blessings, so many protection, comfort, care, love. His love. He knows what we need. What do we need? We need Him. We need His presence so what we need. David says in verse 5 you have laid your hand upon me. It's not a hand of judgment, it's a hand of blessing. He's preserving us, he's protecting us, he's guiding us, he's helping us, defending us. With the Lord surrounding us, surrounding his children with his present presence, what more could we need? We have his security. Now what's David's response to all this in verse 6? David says all these things and he stands back. Look at verse 6. He says, "Such knowledge I've just talked about is too wonderful for me." It's too high. I cannot even attain to it. It's incomprehensible. It's amazing. It's unbelievable that God would have this relationship with me. It's too high. Isaiah 26 uses that phrase to talk about a a people who dwell on high in an unassailable city, a city with high walls that can't be assailed by an enemy. enemy can't get through. That's how God, this knowledge of God is, is too high. I just can't, I can't get it. It's too much for me, he says. David knows that he can't fathom this. It's all be, God, the knowledge of God is just totally beyond him. People ask us questions all the time, impossible questions here. How can you explain this verse? How can you explain God and all these things? And we often say, wow, it's a mystery. <laughs> that's our go-to answer. It's a mystery to us. <laughs> that, way, that way you don't have to study when you say that. Um, actually, that's true. Many times God, the ways of God are mysterious. How do we understand this, the knowledge of God? It's it's beyond us. That's the whole issue. It's beyond us. I cannot attain to it. David does not even have the ability to grasp this unbelievable, incredible, uh, comprehensive knowledge of God. He just stands in awe of God. Now, theology, when you study theology, it shouldn't fill your head with more knowledge. That's not the purpose of theology. It's not the way we study it. It should lead us to praise and worship God because he is great. He's amazing, Right? He knows all about you. He knows about your daily activities. He knows about your thoughts. He knows your words. He knows your insecurities, which all of us have. The only question that remains is, what is your response to him? How do you respond to all these things? What do you think about God as, as a result of all this? What do you, how do you respond to this? Psalm 139, You could cultivate in us a heart of praise, a heart of worship, as we contemplate the fact that the Lord has perfect knowledge of us. Amazing. Secondly, David is amazed by the inescapable presence of God. He's amazed by the inescapable presence of God. Look at verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, uh, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me. And the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and the light are alike to you. Not only is God omniscient, but he's also... What's the other theological term? Omnipresent, right? Omnipresent. He is a God who is ever-present, everywhere-present with the fullness of his being. Grudem says he is Lord of space and cannot be limited by space. I like that. Praise. The Lord of space cannot be limited by space. Or, the New Te- or the, as the Old Testament says, Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24, God says, am I a God at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Do I not fill heaven and earth? David said in 1 Kings 8, the heaven and the, hev- and the highest heaven cannot contain you. Now, that, is not, that does not mean that God is part of his creation like the Hindus believe. He's not part of the creation. He's the creator. Keep that in mind. Grudem, again, says, God is present everywhere in his creation, but he's also distinct from his creation. He's distinct from it. Now, you know, the the fact is we can't, how can we grasp that? Again, how do we grasp this information? How do we understand this? All we can do is go back to verse 6, which says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. Verse 7, he asks two questions, two rhetorical questions that imply a negative answer. Uh, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? To flee from the spirit of God is to flee from the presence of God. No one can run from God and hide. It can't be done. You can't do it. People say, I'm running from God. Well, good luck. Good luck to you. Keep running. He's going he's gonna to get you before it's all said. He knows. You think? Are you going to outrun him? No place hidden from God. Jonah tried to do that. That's why Jonah at once, interesting to me, It says, Jonah tried to flee from the presence of the Lord. And he knew it. He knew he was doing it. Can you imagine that? Trying to flee from the presence of God, the God who is everywhere present with the fullness of his being. But the Lord used the circumstances to bring him back to his assignment that he had for him. There's an old saying that says, you can run, but you cannot hide. That's especially true of God. You can try to run, but you can't hide from him. He's inescapable. And then David specifies what he means by this. That you can't run from God you can't escape from God first of all he says in effect you can't escape from God in heaven in verse 8 you can't escape from Him in heaven he says if I ascended to heaven uh, he says you were there if a person were able to ascend to heaven he would find God there that's his throne right heaven is his throne even with all in Matthew Henry says even with all the people who would be in heaven there is there even in heaven there is no escaping God's eye there in any corner or in any, any crowd and who would want to if you're in heaven, right? Why would you want to escape from God anyway? You'd be glad that we'd be glad to be with Him. It'd be sheer joy to be with Him. And secondly, He said you can't escape from Him in the grave. Verse eight: If I make my bed in Sheol, which I take as the grave, behold, you are there. Uh, it's a word for the realm of the dead, and there's a lot of controversy about this, some controversy about the word, but basically the realm of the dead. If I were to go to the boat, the abode of the dead, the grave, God is there. Now we don't like that. Sounds strange. But uh, you talk about remote. We talked about remote places. That's remote. You can't escape God there. Number three, you can't escape from him by traveling great distances, verse 9, by take the wings of the dawn, by which he means if you could travel with the sun from east to west. If you could travel with the sun, you can't escape from God. Travel the world, the worldwide if you want. Go to anywhere in the world. doesn't matter where you go. You're not, gonna, you're not going to escape from God. No matter how far you go, he's in the east, he's in the west, he's in the north, he's in the south. You can't get away from him. Number four, you can't escape from him in the sea. Verse 9, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will leave me, your right hand will lay hold of me. That's, a, that's just an amazing thought. You could go to the very bottom of the ocean and hang out with all the strange creatures down there. you ever seen those strange creatures that, have, that are lit up and all that in the deepest parts of the ocean? Go down there. You're not going to escape the presence of God. There's a place in the ocean called the the Challenger Deep in the Mariana Trench. Mariana Trench, the Challenger Deep is the deepest part of the ocean. Uh, it's been measured uh, to be approximately thirty-six thousand seventy feet below sea level. Really, really deep. In fact, I think one of the special ships, uh, boats went, uh, not boat, whatever they call it, capsule, something went down there, all the way to the bottom, uh, to investigate it, but. They say if Mount Everest, the highest mountain on, on earth, was placed at this location, it would be covered by over one mile of water. Now, that's deep. That's insanely deep. But not for the one who created it. The one who created it is not deep. He's, he's there. You can't escape him there. You can't escape him in the darkness, verses 11 and 12. Um, if I say surely the darkness will overwhelm me, the light around, around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, darkness and night are alike to you. You Ever been in the, in the pitch black darkness? You Ever been out in the woods on a really dark night with no lights? In the middle of the woods? Very, very dark. Unless the moon shining through. Or the stars. Sometimes it's so dark it can, be, it can feel oppressive. It might even make you afraid. People have even gotten lost in the dark in the wilderness. But guess what? God knows where they are. They don't, they're not lost to him. God doesn't need night goggles to see them in the dark. He knows where they are. It's immaterial to him whether it's day or night. He doesn't care. I like the phrase in verse 11, the night is as bright as the day to God. Not to us it's not, it's not but to him it is. The darkness cannot hide us from God. Now, David's is not saying all this because he wants to escape from God. He's not interested in escaping from God. He has no desire to escape from God. He wants to live in the presence of God, openly in the presence of God. He delights to live in the presence of God. He wants to do that. Um, And Believers can take it one step further than that even though God's everywhere at once with the presence of his fullness of his being We can take it one step further. We have the presence of God with us in a special way We have the Holy Spirit in dwelling us. God's always with us. We cannot escape that Can't get away from him. We don't want to get away from him Unless we're running from him somehow in disobedience But David's very thankful for God's presence and all of us need this assurance and you see throughout the Bible Joshua what needed to know that the Lord was with him when he undertook the mission to conquer Canaan, And so the Lord tells him in Joshua 1:5, "Just as I have been with Moses, the man I knew face to face, I'm going to be with you, Joshua, I 'll be with you. I will not fake you or fail, I'm sorry, I will not fail you or forsake you." And that verse is quoted in Hebrews to tell the people of that day the same truth: God's with us. And then Daniel's friends, the three friends, when they were cast into the fiery furnace, guess who was there with them? The Lord was, right? With them. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. The Lord was with him. When Joseph was thrown into the pit, the Lord was with him, it says, and prospered him as time went on. We don't need to fear because the Lord is with us regardless of circumstances. When Paul was in the city of Corinth, Jimmy taught the survey of 1 Corinthians this morning. He experienced fear in the city of Corinth, In Acts 18, chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, listen to this. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, suggesting to us what? Paul was afraid. Yeah, the apostle Paul even. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, he says. No man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in the city. Paul knew what it was to be attacked by people all the time. He says, Don't worry, Paul. I know you're afraid. Don't worry. Nobody's going to attack you in this city. I've got many people in here that serve me. Even the Apostle Paul needed God's reassurance that God was with him. If Paul needed that comfort, I would say we all need that comfort. John Calvin said no one can look upon himself without immediately (coughs) turning his thoughts to the contemplation of God. That's what we should always do. As we think about our lives, as we think about the decisions that are ahead of us, as we think about tomorrow and, we, and, and going to work and school, wherever you're going, you should think about God. How does God figure into my life? How should I relate to him? How should I serve him? For in, for, as Acts 17 says, for in God we live and move and exist. Our very existence, our lives are in God, grounded in God. And our lives are, as believers are so intertwined with God, with the Lord, that we must always consider ourselves in the person of God. Always think of ourselves that way. He's all-knowing. He knows all about you, every detail, everything in your life, every single detail. He's everywhere present at once with the fullness of his being. There's no place in the universe his presence can be avoided, no place you can hide but to apply, apply to believers. He's with you in a special way. He's, he's just infinitely superior to us. You read, read Psalm 139. He's infinitely superior to us. There's no comparison. And all we can do as we conclude is go back to verse 6. Just like David said, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. We'll never grasp the true greatness of God ever. But we can always rejoice in the fact that he is truly amazing. Let's close in prayer. We are grateful again for your word, for the fact that we that we can know you, Lord, that you know us first, and you and you call us to yourself, and that you are a, a God superior in every way to us, Lord, we're glad about that. We're thankful for that. We pray. We'll depend upon you this week. Look to you in all our needs. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.